0: We live in a productivity culture and, like, a culture where, like, w- one of the only ways that, like, we can argue for, like, our own existence or, like, we can argue, like, our value of ourselves is through the work we create, which I think is fundamentally flawed, but, like, it is something that we can't escape. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Milman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, graphic novelist and writer Johnny Sun talks about his unusual range of interests and about how Twitter has helped him creatively. There is also a real sense of joy and community in being more of myself
1: online. Support for this episode of Design Matters comes from Lexus, and we are thrilled to have them as our podcast partner. Here are a few things to know about Johnny's son. Johnny is spelled without an H. He's Canadian. He has a master's degree in architecture, and he's a doctoral candidate at MIT. But that's not all, not even close. In 2017, he published an illustrated novel called Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too. Then he illustrated a book written by Lynn manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. In 2018, he collaborated on an interactive multimedia installation titled The Laughing Room. And finally, he just released a brand new book, Goodbye Again. Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations, which we're going to talk all about today. Johnny Sun, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Debbie.
1: Johnny, I understand that you posted an app idea for a dog walking service where a dog shows up at your door and you have to get out of the house and go for a walk with the dog. Right. How's that working out for you? Oh,
0: <laughs> I feel like I posted that as uh, mainly as a joke as a as a fun um, throwaway idea, but i <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, as a as a as a pet mother, I can tell you that I think it's a great okay. idea.
0: I mean I thought it was a great idea too. I hope someone like saw it and is inspired to make that. Um but I I tweeted that uh at a moment in my life where um I was in kind of a depressive episode and that like that that was like a fun way to talk about sort of my inability to leave the house. Or get out of bed. And mm. I thought like, oh, if only...
1: Oh, I'm sorry to bring up a, a bad memory. Oh, no, a bad oh, memory. no it's great. But I do think there's something really true about it. There are times when I don't go out of the house other than to walk my yeah.
0: dog. Yeah, uh, and I thought like, oh, if, if only a dog could show up at my doorstep <laughs> and give me that <laughs> excuse as well.
1: <laughs> Time for a walk, <laughs> trick or treat. <laughs> Johnny, your parents emigrated from China to Calgary, Canada mm-hmm. in the 1980s. And then you all moved to Toronto when you were 11. Mm-hmm. Your parents were both medical researchers and PhDs. Did you grow up in a very academic environment?
0: I feel like I, w- grew, I would say I grew up in like a very supported environment. I think like my parents, um, I feel I'm like stuttering a bit because I feel like I, I i wonder what it means to grow up in like a academic environment specifically. But um, I feel like I grew up reading a lot and um Every time we'd go somewhere, uh, my parents would somehow, like, find a new book for me to read or get me a book that I wanted, or books were, like, a constant thing that was in our house and that I was, like, constantly consuming. Um, my parents also put me in uh, music lessons and art classes and um, also had, like, the, the after-school, um, like, math and science workbooks. Um, but it, it really felt like a very holistic kind of supported childhood.
1: What were you like as a child?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I feel like, I don't know if my answer would be the same as what other people would say. I feel like that's like the the hard part of, of answering a question like that. I feel like I was very precocious and energetic, but also quiet and shy. I loved art and, and drawing in particular and was, I feel like I was always drawing and reading. But then that also somehow I think fed into maybe like a a, a a more internally focused life than an externally focused one in a way. Um, but I think as I grew up, I got, in a sense, like more and more reserved and, and, and quiet.
1: You've said that you think your feelings of being an outsider and not able to connect, that they come down to you as an Asian Canadian and not really feeling at home anymore. And you've written about how by the time you got to high school, you felt virtually invisible. Mm-hmm. You felt that you evaporated in groups and never spoke in class. Yeah. How did you manage through that?
0: I, it's interesting because it feels like while that is true, I also have memories of high school that were like deeply social, and I had very deep and personal like close one-on-one friendships with a few people. I feel like I wasn't very good at the group thing, but I was really good at kind of like the one-on-one friendship thing the sort of like almost like the therapy friend thing that I write about in my book which is like much more focused on like one-on-one and a conversation and like listening and sharing um, feelings and secrets and stuff but definitely in high school there was that feeling of outsiderness Um, a lot of it was I think mediated by the fact that I moved to Toronto and that like the city I grew up in was no longer the city I was living in and there felt like a, a pretty deep sense of of displacement or disconnection. And I think that kind of led to a feeling where I was like, oh, I don't, this is not the city I grew up in. I, I'm trying to figure this out as I'm also expected to like be a person and, and grow and, and make friends. And so I think that really contributed to that um, that feeling of like, loneliness and quietness in high school. Um but I will say that I also made like a decision in grade 9. I I was enrolled in like kind of all the usual core classes, but then I saw that drama class was an option and I was like a ferocious like movie And TV person at that point and my parents had taken us to like the blockbuster every weekend and we would rent That was like my film school early on that every week I'd get to like watch four or five movies that I chose um, With very little parental oversight, which was kind of great but I was interested in kind of film and acting and Writing and directing and all those things and I saw that drama class was an extension or like a way to Connect to that in a sense and so my Quiet. My my one step that I'm very proud of myself for taking as a ninth grader was saying, you know, I'm terrified of like speaking out loud or like being seen, but I'm going to take this drama class. And it really kind of opened up a creative side of me that um, I'm very grateful for.
1: You say that when you enrolled in that local drama class, Mm -hmm. that you did this to try and change your fate. (laughs) Yeah. And I kind of love that, that sort of very intentional, I know this is going to be excruciating, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. But I was wondering when I read that, I was wondering, what did you think your fate was at that time that you were trying to change?
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been thinking a lot more about this, about like the the identities that like society tries to box people into and, and kind of like what, what it means for like an external source to define you in ways with more pressure than perhaps like an an internal personal definition could exist. I mean, Toronto is like a very kind of like Asian city and definitely in my high school, I had a lot of Asian friends and there was the kind of like the in joke among like the Asian kids at school was like, Oh, we're going to all take the Asian six pack, which was like uh, biology, chemistry and physics and then like calculus, um, advanced linear algebra, and geometry, or something like that. Like three math classes, three science classes, and I ended up doing that. But at the same time, um, I I also uh, thought like you know what drama feels like. It's not within those confines or within that definition. And this is something I'm legitimately interested in. And that ended up becoming a place where I found a lot of really close friends that I still talk to today.
1: I understand that acting and hanging around with actors gave you what you refer to as permission to perform the way you wish you could Ooh. be.
0: This is cool. Where are you where are you getting all of these this this information? <laughs> this is this is awesome.
1: <laughs> well it's all things you've That's said crazy. and I love them. And I felt like they just felt so true and authentic to me, because mm-hmm. I also was a drama kid in oh, high yeah. school, and it gave me that same sense of freedom and a sense of being bigger, part of something bigger than i than I was on my own. Yeah. Um, and so I was really, really curious yeah. what permission you felt that gave you.
0: It feels like in drama class, and I think by extension, sort of like, being in community with, like, actors and performers and creative people and theater people, it feels like there is that fostering of, like, a, a a space of trust and a space of community and a space where, like, you are allowed to be whoever you want to express yourself as because you're surrounded by all these people that are doing just that. Um, but uh, back in ninth grade, <laughs> um, there was that element of, I think I, like, credit my drama teacher a lot, Uh, Victoria Da at Northern um, in Toronto uh, for creating like this space that felt very trusting that like by some miracle in a way this like black room the like black box theater of the drama class um, there were kids from all different cliques there were like the jocks and like a few math kids like me there were um like they were, there were there's uh, everyone kind of all from out throughout the school um but in this in this like black box theater we were part of like one community
1: it's interesting in my high school the jocks never were part of the theater clique uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> johnny when did you start collecting joke books
0: oh that was when i was a kid for for whatever reason that felt like the book the type of book that showed up at every garage sale like 101 jokes about football or like 101 space jokes i still can remember like the the like shelf of like used books there and they're all very thin um but just like collections and collections of all these different kind of books of one liner jokes they're all like probably terrible jokes but when you're a kid you're just like oh this is this that was like one of my introductions to like joke structure and humor and kind of like the very structure of a joke of like the the setup and the punchline um but yeah that that was always the joy for going to a garage sale of like oh let's see if there are any any books that are like joke books that i don't have yet
1: is it true that as you developed your sense of humor, you started to give every presentation you had in your biology and English classes as comedy sketches.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, would I
1: love to see footage of that? <laughs> oh
0: man. There was one. I remember this was like, as I like realized I was interested more and more in like writing comedy and writing plays and writing like little sketches and stuff that like I started doing that. Through kind of drama and through like playwriting class, and started reading um, this playwright that my uh, drama teacher introduced me to called David Ives. Mm -hmm. His work is is very short, kind of surreal, absurdist, humorous plays, and um, that sort of was like like it was a lightning bolt for me of like oh I didn't know like you were allowed to do this. (laughs) And I remember he has a play called The Death of Trotsky, which is all about um, like Leon Trotsky. Dying over and over again in like different scenarios, and there was sort of like a surreal Groundhog Day loop associated with that. But like, there was a little bit of a spark in my head of like, oh, you can just like take subjects and put them through this filter or through this machine of like story, and suddenly you have a story that's also about the subject. And so I started doing that for like in biology class. I think I did a, (laughs) I did a sketch. I don't even remember what the sketch was about but it was about like meiosis I think and like mitosis and like cell splitting. (laughs) Wow. Um, But I think there was a genie involved I think there was like I I got my one of my close friends who was like very much uh, he became a doctor and very much like uh, into like science and um, and research and stuff but I got him to play the genie and it was really fun for me (laughs) and the best part was that like my biology teacher at the end gave us a good grade because she was like Well, you included all the, like, stuff that we needed, you needed to include in the presentation. It was just not, like, a PowerPoint presentation. It was a a, a play. Um, But you got it all there, so I have to give you a good grade.
1: Now, initially, your journey in theater and comedy ended with high school, as your parents wanted you to do something more secure, Mm -hmm. especially given how good you were at math. What did your parents want you to do at that point in your life?
0: it was interesting because the more i think about it too the more i realize like it wasn't just what my parent about like what my parents wanted me to do but i was also caught at a crossroads of like what i wanted to do where like i was for like as much fun as i had and how kind of invested i was in um theater and playwriting and drama i was also i think equally as excited about and invested in the maths and the sciences and that expressed itself as the thought of going to engineering school. And I just couldn't figure out how to, like, make up my mind about it. And two conversations I remember for having to make that choice was I asked my mom about it. She was she took me through, like, the thought process of, like, well, what do you want to be? And I didn't really know, but I said maybe an engineer, maybe a writer or an actor or a performer. Um, and then she said, well, like, think about, like, think about the engineers that you know um, and they all had to go through engineering school, but then think about all like the writers and the performers and the actors that you look up to, and how many of them necessarily went through theater school to get to where they are and through kind of like talking about it, um, she helped me realize that like if I went to theater school, I cut off the path almost completely to sort of be an engineer, which isn 't necessarily true, but it felt that way, uh, and that but if I went to engineering school, there was still like an option that I could pursue kind of that creative writing life afterwards or during. And then I also talked to my drama teacher and her perspective was like, listen, if you can try, if you can like live without wanting to be a writer, you should do that because writing is a stressful, hard life. It will torture you. It is um, a very difficult kind of uh, mental process to, like, constantly um, live as a writer. And so if you can do it and the, the like, inspiration to write or the, the desire or the need to write doesn't come back to you, then you're free in a way. <laughs> but <laughs> if if you try to do it and realize, oh, no, I still have that compulsion, then it's going to find you. And then you're going to end up, like, wanting to write and you are going to end up writing regardless. And so both of those conversations felt very freeing, and so I thought, okay, I'll go to engineering school. And then as it turns out, while I was there, um, I found out that the engineering school I chose, which is the University of Toronto, um, the department there of engineers also put on a comedy show every year, which was like a perfect um, thing for me.
1: (laughs) The Venn diagram of your life. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. And it turns out like the Venn diagram for the engineers who also were interested in sketch comedy was very small. Like the overlap was tiny, but it was there that I kind of met a lot of my people. It felt like that's where I I met my girlfriend who, and then who became my wife. And yeah, that felt like a really special convergence.
1: After graduation, you continued on to the Yale School of Architecture, where one of your professors stated that your drawings had a very distinct sensibility. Mm. They were more Marameco than Michelangelo. (laughs) Um, What made you decide to go on and get a master's degree in architecture? Did you think at that point you might be an architect?
0: I thought about it. I think I had like an idealized version of what architecture was when I applied to architecture school. And I, I certainly had an idealized version of like what an architect does. Um, as I was entering into that field. Uh, For me, the biggest thing was, here I was at the end of engineering school, where I still had a deep passion for engineering, especially uh, for like structures and structural analysis. And um, I learned all about bridges and how to design the designs of bridges and how they reflect like the physics of bridges. And and I, at the same time, it's also still interested in theater and, and playwriting and, and drama. And, um, but architecture to me represented like a, a combination of those where you needed that kind of like structural brain as well as a creative and artistic brain. And so I thought that would be like a cool, I also had heard it described as sort of like art school, but with a little bit more engineering involved. <laughs> um, and I don't know how true that description was, um, but It was more of a a hope that, like, architecture would be the thing that felt like it combined those two things.
1: While you were in architecture school, you began to tweet at least one joke every day. However, your first tweet Uh on March 26, 2009, was simply a statement. (laughs) And you stated... Japanese money looks so badass. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that was <laughs> it's such a random first tweet. Japanese oh, money great. looks so badass. <laughs> yeah. Um when and and why did you turn to jokes?
0: Um that's a great question. Okay, about the first tweet, that was so 2009 <laughs> you said. Um, yes. that was during engineering school. I think like at that point Twitter had just come out and it was like the The joke that everyone, like, kind of said, or the joke that I always said was, like, it's like Facebook, but it's just the status update part of Facebook. And that's how, like, all my friends used it. That's sort of what we thought it was, of, like, the joke about, like, oh, I'm eating a sandwich now, or, like, just watched this movie, thought it was pretty good. That was what we were doing. Um, But the reason I started tweeting jokes on Twitter in architecture school um, was that in engineering school I had that sketch comedy group and I was also doing second city and kind of writing and found like some friends at the Victoria College Drama Society that I performed and wrote plays with and stuff and basically all those kind of creative communities I had no longer access to when I moved to the US and when I when I moved to New Haven so I thought like okay I'll turn to the internet to do this where on Twitter there were people who were telling jokes and it felt like there were like creative circles and really interesting kind of poets and writers and artists who were also just telling weird jokes and writing weird short-form poems and things. And I was like, I'll do that because that feels like a community I can participate in from anywhere.
1: You said that you initially did this to keep your comedy brain sharp. Mm -hmm. And I understand that you thought Twitter was funny in a way you didn't know you could be funny. Yeah.
0: That's, yeah. And uh-huh.
1: I'm wondering if you could share what that funny was like for you.
0: Well, because a lot of kind of the comedy stuff I'd been doing in Toronto and in college was performance-based. Sketch comedy and, and plays and, and theater and stuff. And I think all of that confirmed to me that, like, I don't think I'd ever be able to be a performer. That, like, I had so many friends who were incredibly talented Performers that they knew how to like be on stage and and like use their body and their voice as an instrument in a way that like I didn't and that I still don't I don't feel like I totally have like control over my myself and my like my the way I speak out loud in real time and like the way I inhabit space I guess. Um, but my friend, I had some friends who were amazing at that, and it, it kind of made me feel like okay, I don't, I don't think I could be a performer, but I'd love to be a writer, and I'd love to. My thought was like, I'd love to write for them, and that'd be amazing. And then when I got, when I was on Twitter, like Twitter is not performance, right? Twitter is writing and reading, and um, I think particularly what was interesting about Twitter was there was so much play with like voice and with character that a lot of the most of the people that I followed that I thought were doing interesting things were not tweeting as themselves. They were tweeting as, like, a dad who loves coffee. Or, like... Um, God. Yeah, like, yeah, you know?
1: Like, <laughs> or shit my dad says. <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: exactly. There was stuff like that, that that felt like there was, like, a layer of performance involved with it, but the performance still ended up being um, something that was a, a written thing. So it was different from 101 Jokes About Football, and it was different from Sketch. And it was, all, it was like, performance but through writing um, that I, I, I really got excited by.
1: You said that part of your working theory on comedy mm-hmm. and maybe all art is that it's supposed to feel like an inside joke, mm-hmm. but you're supposed to try to get everyone to feel like they're in on the inside joke. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you still feel that way. And if so, how do you go about doing
0: that? I still believe that it should feel like an inside joke. I don't necessarily know if it's possible for everyone to feel like they're in on the inside joke. But I, I do like the idea of being generous with like who you extend that like welcome to. One of the things that I am thrilled with in both my humor writing and in my like non humor writing is when people say, like, oh, I thought I was the only person who felt this way or mm. um I didn't even know that I felt this way. Or <laughs> or like or I didn't know like you could express this in words. That's what I appreciate with humor, with like about humor is the feeling that like someone could tell a joke and suddenly we're all friends, <laughs> right? Like right. like everyone Absolutely. in the audience is friends with the person telling the joke and with each other because yeah. we're all united you know, in shame. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and as and like I think shifting as like the person who is the one writing the joke or writing the thing. There's also something I didn't realize until I started doing it that, like, the connection also extends that way, too, of, like, I'm writing about something that makes me feel lonely. And when other people understand that feeling as well, suddenly I'm, like, sharing a thing with someone else. I'm no longer just, like, uh, isolated in this in this feeling.
1: While you were honing your comedic skills, you initially wanted to keep your identity a secret Mm -hmm. because you were afraid of the harassment that you might receive as a Chinese-Canadian doing comedy. Once people knew it was you, did you experience
0: any? vitriol or bullying yeah uh, yeah (laughs) i wish i could say i didn't um but yeah me too when i started really writing humor on twitter i like first of all everyone i was following was also writing under anonymous accounts and like different characters and stuff and my thought was like okay i just moved to the u.s i feel pretty alienated so i'll just like quickly draw a little alien cartoon um and then i kept my name because johnny sun sounds like um like a, a pen name anyway and especially tied to an alien um you're like all right yeah it's an alien it's the sun it's space themed and then um after the book came out when i when i changed my profile picture basically to a picture of my face there were tweets that were like when did i like when did i follow this like slur for an asian person or like oh. like people would just use racial epithets and and stuff um but for the most part and the thing i like want to focus on is that there was also a real kind of like sense of joy and community in being more of myself online in the sense that like there were people who sent me essays they had written when they found out I was Asian and they were Asian too and they 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 had written things of like oh I'd never had like a person who did the stuff that I was interested in to look up to who looked like me and there were people who said that they like cried when they realized which was really touching in the sense that if you looked at the kind of broad like twitter comedy landscape at that time it was very rare i i I think i overlooked the like the harassment and the bad stuff because there was a lot of joy and, and 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 nice things that came out of that
1: well, one of those things was your first book. Yeah. Um, Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too, which is a beautifully illustrated story about a sweet and lonely alien sent to observe Earth and while here he meets all sorts of characters that have different perspectives on life and love and happiness, all while learning to feel a little bit better about himself. Mm-hmm. And you named the alien Jomny, mm-hmm. which was also the name of the author. You changed your name for the uh-huh. book. You use the same name, Jomney, Jomny, J-O-M-N-Y. Uh-huh. Uh, why Jomny?
0: So that this was kind of an extension of like the alien uh, thing on Twitter, um, where one of the things that I loved about Twitter was the idea that you could really create a sense of character and create a sense of voice just through text. Mm -hmm. And so when I was like the alien character on Twitter, there was a fun in like doing these typos to create a sense of like, oh, this, whoever is typing, this is imperfect, is like making mistakes, uh, but is not, not too self-conscious about their mistakes that they're going to try to fix it and make everything perfect that like the mistakes are going to just stay there. And um, something I got really excited about and like kind of zeroed in on was making sure that the typos and like the grammatical errors that I was doing on Twitter were not associated with um, sort of like making fun of any accent or any sort of existing kind of grammatical error that people could make. Um, uh, Growing up as like an Asian writer, I also am very aware of like the ways people can like use grammar as a weapon, yeah, as a weapon, exactly. Yeah. And I also grew up like correcting my parents' academic papers, and so I was very careful not to do anything that could be read as like making fun of like English second language speakers or people learning English for the first time. And I really focused in on the idea of like the keyboard based typos of like the thing, the reason Jomny J O M N Y is because I got really excited about the N key and the fact that like next to the N key on the keyboard are the letters B and M. In normal people's tweets, that typo exists where like instead of an M, N, their thumb accidentally hits one of the keys next to it. And so I really focused on that where like Jomney, uh, the M is there because it's an accidental M next to the N. Um and then I extended that to the title Everyone's uh, Alia bin where there's like a B next to the <laughs> N because that's also like a like yes. a thumb error. Yeah, that was kind of the the play that I was doing there.
1: How did you develop Jomni? Did he come fully formed? Did his attributes as a character evolve over time? Talk about the way in which he came to life.
0: The bio that I had on Twitter was alien confused about human language. And my, like, headcanon for that was that human language was, like, emotion and was, like, the ways to interact with people. So this alien who, like, primarily is confused about, like, learning what emotions are and this like journey of getting to know people and like learning these kind of deep human yeah feelings and and thoughts and like anxieties and emotions I think that was tied to like a personal awareness of like my emotional kind of identity and the the emotions I was going through at the time and especially as I was focusing on the book I was also um, learning more about, like, my anxiety and my depression and my mental health. And I started seeing a therapist and I started, like, talking to my friends about it. Like, I, I I feel like the thesis of the book is sort of, like, if you are able to be open with yourself and with, like, other people, then it helps other people open up and then you, you can connect with people better. And so that idea of, like, everyone's an alien when you're an alien, too, um, really means, like... Yeah, we are all. Let's let's all share in our like, our confusion about the world, and and together we can find community. Now it's
1: time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Lexus.
2: I'm Keenan Scott II. I am uh, now officially a Broadway playwright, and I'm a hybrid artist. I'm an artist all around.
1: Keenan is a TED fellow. And his play, Thoughts of a Colored Man, will be the first new play to debut since Broadway shut down over a year ago. I talked with him about how empathy
2: guides all of his work. My first love in life was drawing and painting. Eventually, in my teenage years, I stumbled across the art form of poetry. And then when I got to college, I decided to study acting. When I started learning the great American plays, I didn't see myself represented. I wanted to create something that me and my peers can unapologetically be ourselves. And that small novel idea I had ended up Turning into Thoughts of a Colored Man, a play that's preparing on Broadway.
1: I read an op-ed that you wrote in American Theater Magazine about the motivation behind Thoughts of a Colored Man, and you stated this. My ultimate goal was to foster empathy because I wanted to be seen. I wanted to help create a world in which the lives of Black men were as valuable as their white counterparts, fueled by angst, like an architect, I began to piece together fragments of poems, monologues, and thoughts I had written, outpoured the first draft of the play that would become Thoughts of a Colored Man. Keenan, why has empathy been so important to you and to this play in particular?
2: I didn't realize that I was weaving in the element of empathy into my character's until I started hearing responses from people witnessing my work. And I started to realize when people would tell me how much they learned from seeing these Black men in their environment, not necessarily attached to discrimination or racism, but really seeing these men in their everyday life and seeing them engage with each other. So very early on, I knew empathy was very important for me in my work because I would hope that if anybody read anything from me or saw any of my productions, they learned a little more than they knew before they came in that door. So they might look at that young man sitting at a bus stop a little different. They might look at that grocery store worker a little bit different. They might see that man that's riding on the train with them just a little bit different. So empathy is very important for me, and I think it's very important for us just as human beings. How would you define empathy? Empathy for me is the understanding and care for something or someone that's unlike you. How are you able to create empathy in your work? I try to write from the most authentic and truthful place that I can. And being truthful in my work doesn't mean that my characters or my stories are going to be perfect, because they're not. We're we're not perfect human beings, right? So I don't create my characters to be perfect. I create them to all be flawed. And in those flaws, that's where we see humanity.
1: What is your advice for people trying to develop a greater sense of empathy?
2: Try to surround yourself and talk to and immerse yourself in situations and things that are unlike you. There has to be an effort put in to building empathy by taking yourself out of your comfort zone and out of your own personal community, whatever that community is. And I think once that door opens, it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to open your mind and your spirit to things that's unlike yourself.
1: Lexus also believes that empathy emerges when you focus on people and leads to innovation. The Lexus LS was inspired by humans and engineered to a higher standard the human standard. Visit lexus.com slash ls. That's l-e-x-u-s dot com slash ls to learn more. One of your book blurbs stated, read this book only if you want to feel more
0: alive. Do you remember who stayed? Yeah, with you? I'm looking at it on oh, the back of my book. That was um, a <laughs> uh, cheater, know, cheater. I <laughs> hey, I know I have <laughs> I have my books right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was um, that was Lin Manuel Miranda.
1: So you first met face-to-face backstage at Hamilton, after uh-huh. which Lynn tweeted, I met Jamni son. It's a goop night. <laughs> how did Lynn first become aware of your work? How did you end up backstage at Hamilton? Give us all the details.
0: I still don't actually... You'd have to ask Lynn how he, how he realized who I was. Um, at some point, I had followed him forever. I had followed him since um, In the Heights and since when I had the chance to direct... Like the sketch show from college. It was a, a musical and sketch show. And like the musical mm-hmm. element was we took existing musical numbers and rewrote them to be about like engineering and student life and stuff. Um, but I ended up using two songs from In the Heights um, and like kind of rewrote all the lyrics, um, these like very dense, layered um, rhyme schemes. To, to be about like engineering life and and student life and stuff, but I'd been a fan of him his forever. I'd followed him forever, I think I tweeted at him a few times, but at the same time, I was just like doing my thing and like writing, and at some point, he just followed me back, and we just started like being friends on Twitter the way that like that phenomenon feels like it naturally happens magically sometimes uh, and then i don 't remember how I ended up seeing Hamilton. I think I was going to be in New York anyway for something and I messaged him and he said like oh there's like we like we save like the standing room seats at the back sometimes and I'll like I'll make sure you get one and I think that's the first time that I saw Hamilton and then afterwards I like waited for him (laughs) at the at the line uh outside the theater and he said hi and we crossed the street and got a slice of pizza and, and kind of hung out for the first time
1: you then illustrated Lynn Manuel Miranda's book Good Morning, Goodnight, which was a collection of Lynn's morning and evening tweets. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that book came together and what it was like to collaborate with Lynn.
0: It was a phenomenal experience. Lynn had been doing these tweets and like it was a regular practice for him.
1: Yes. I love those tweets. They're yeah. Wonderful. me too. <laughs> uh,
0: and I think more and more people had tweeted him and said, like Can you please turn this into a book? And I remember he tweeted out at, like, everyone kind of being, like, I'm thinking about this, but I'm not sure. And I saw that, and I I texted him, and I said, like, I have thoughts. I I have now done a book that, like, ostensibly was kind of, like, based on Twitter, but not really, but, like, had, like, was blurring the line between, like, Twitter and the book. And one of the things I said was, like, um, for me, the drawings and Everyone's an Alien was really important because it was something that you could... Like see with a book that didn't make sense to me as like a web comic or something that you could post online, and so I, I kind of talked with him for a bit, and he was like, "Great, I was thinking about drawings too, and I was wondering if you would be interested in illustrating." <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, absolutely." I wasn't trying to pitch myself for this; I was just like giving you my thoughts. But but yeah, that sounds amazing. And uh, the process of doing the book was cool. There was a third person who worked on the book with us her name was Cassandra Titland and she um compiled a bunch of Lynn's tweets and she was kind of the one in charge of like curating the the thread of them and choosing which ones and and then the process of illustrating them i spent a couple days with Lynn at his home um we hung out and i spent the days like asking him about like, the context for every single... It was, like, a long-form podcast interview. I wish I, like... I wish we had the thought to, like, record it. But it really was, like, me going through every page being, like, Mm. when you tweeted this, what... Do you remember what day it was? Do you remember, like, what time of your life this was? Do you remember what you were talking about? Because some of them are a little more abstract. Some of them are a little more cryptic. And he had an answer for every single one. From, like, his answers, I suddenly had all this material to go off of. And the illustration process was... um trying to be really specific about Lynn's life. And I always think of it as, like, a portrait of my friend in 100 drawings where none of the drawings are of his face. And so it was a lot about, like, objects that were important to him or places or, like, settings, things that were important to his kids, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a non-representational self-portrait.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, my hope is that, like, people can see the drawings and feel like somehow they know Lynn a bit better. Or people who know Lynn already can flip through them and be like, oh, like, this is... Um, like the slot machine at the bodega and stuff like that.
1: You said that the idea of your current book, Mm -hmm. Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations, started while you were working on Good Morning, Good Night.
0: Yeah. How so? For a while, I was just making sure I wrote down things. And like, I mean, this was a practice that I had been cultivating since, like before Twitter, when I was like trying to think of any idea could be an idea for like a sketch or a play Um, and then when Twitter started happening more and more it was like any idea could potentially be a joke or a poem or something to like write and I think I just continued maintaining that practice and eventually I was just like writing down little bits of realizations and little bits of like feelings and things that I had like discovered about myself or things that I wanted to remember in terms of, like, how to cope with, like, loneliness or anxiety or depression. And eventually I had a lot of that stuff. And the book within also made me think about kind of the idea of, like, how do you do a bunch of short pieces and make them feel cohesive and make them feel like a whole? Um, and how do you do that as a collection of, like, essays or, like, longer form writing? And then my wife, who was not my wife at the time, she noticed, like, I was writing all this stuff and I was enjoying it. And she said, I think this is, like, this should be your next book. That, like, clearly... There's something about there's a there are recurring themes and ideas through this stuff.
1: And is it true that you wrote most of goodbye again on your phone?
0: Yeah, yeah, I um Wow. Yeah. That's talent. <laughs> oh, <thanks. laughs> Honestly, the thing that makes it easier for me is that when I open up like a word document on my computer, suddenly like it feels too formal and it feels too scary of like oh now I have to like sit and be a writer whereas like if I open the notes app on my phone and jot some stuff down that doesn't feel like I'm writing it feels like I'm just like taking notes it feels like I'm it feels the same like physically as I'm like texting a friend right that helped a lot in terms of just like gathering ideas and figuring stuff out and not feeling self-conscious about like I am writing a book
1: you originally wrote the book during the year you were supposed to be taking a break and in the introduction to the book you state this From this break-taking, these essays came. A year of trying to take a break became two years, then three years of writing and putting these pieces together and working on this book. And over those three years, working on this book kept me some consistent sort of company as I navigated some destabilizing goodbyes of moving out of different rooms and different apartments and leaving different cities, and then some destabilizing hellos of trying to find ways to live in the new places I landed in. Johnny, what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself during the process of writing this book?
0: Oh man, that's a great question. This might feel a little meta, but, like, I think there's a level of, like, anxiety that I always carry with myself. Like, there's always, like, a a level of alarm for me of, like, I, I'm not doing enough. I'm, I, I don't know what I'm doing. People will think I'm a fraud. I'm bad at what I do. There's, like, constantly, like, that thing in my head. And I think, like, through doing the book, um, it made me feel like, oh, all those periods in the past where I felt like I didn't know what I was doing those all like went into the book now. So like there must've been some version of like knowing what I was doing back then. And it helps give me like a little bit more comfort that like maybe right now I'm also doing all right, even though if it doesn't feel like it.
1: Yeah. The perspective of time. Mm-hmm. Yesterday I learned a Korean word. Um, the word is Han, H A N. And there's no actual English translation. Um, but it sort of means beautiful sadness. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that I learned that word in preparation, completely unrelated to my interviewing you, because I thought that's the word that describes this book. It's this beautiful treatise on love and longing and sadness and solitude and I've picked a few quotes that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. In the book you write, you can't outrun sadness because sadness is already everywhere. Sadness isn't the visitor, you are. And I was wondering if you sort of felt like sadness was just part of the constancy Mm -hmm. of of your foundation in some way
0: yeah definitely even in like the happiest moments like sadness kind of exists and so like that passage at the beginning of the book was was about can i run away from it or like can i push it away and then at the near the end of the book there's like a passage that i have about sadness again that's called visiting sadness and it kind of flips the perspective and it um it treats sadness as, like, as, a, as a visiting bird that like will come and will go and then you can observe. And then you can sort of, um, it's not worth kind of trying to keep them out because they'll find a way in. But as they're here, you can observe them and see these birds and then they'll leave eventually. Um, so I wanted to present like two ideas of sadness.
1: Interesting that you should say that because I'm about to share two quotes with you about a topic you write In the same way that sadness is always there, I find the idea of work and working comforting. It feels like I can leave everything else behind, but as long as I am with myself, I can always work. I can always do something with my time. It's something I can always turn to. Mm -hmm. And then in another passage you state... The only way I feel able to take a break is if I stay up all night working or if I stay up for multiple nights working until I finally exhaust myself physically and mentally to the point where I am forced to stop working because I am incapable of producing any more usable work at least for a day. I fear that I have learned to look forward to burning myself out like this, to love this numbed exhaustion because it is the closest thing I can get to some form of rest. And I'm sad that this is the only way I allow myself to actually take the rest because it is the only circumstance in which I can see rest as productive in that resting at this point is the only way I can get back into working shape once again. I feel so similarly in so many ways. You burn yourself out, I end up getting sick. Like, that's uh-huh. the way it's, it's for me, you know, that resting yeah. comes when my body just forces me to stop. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, that sense of overachievement, workaholism, however we want to call it. Do you think that work helps distract you from sadness?
0: Yeah, I think there's, well, I also want to, like, preface that I think a lot of my attitudes toward, like, work and productivity. Probably come from, like, engineering school and architecture school, and then, like, being a PhD student and, like, that. And I, it, I'm still working hard to, like, undo it, but for a long time I was just, like, deep into it, where I was like, I'm in it. In engineering school, I, um, I stayed up, like, four nights in a row and gave myself, like, a stomach ulcer that made me miss a bunch of exams. But then, I, like, I remember feeling so horrible, and then a year later some of my friends um i over like we were talking about like working and and someone was like oh yeah did you hear that like some guy was like working on his bridge project so much that he like gave himself an ulcer and like isn't that why wa- isn't that like cool like there was a bit of like a celebration of like mm. man if that guy got an yeah. ulcer i could do that too and like being and they didn't know i was that guy and like so being in that position of 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 going through it and knowing it was miserable but then seeing other people like really celebrate it was kind of shocking and terrifying.
1: I think it's just a human thing that somehow we we feel more worthy if we're doing something productive. I think yeah. for me I think it comes from, you know, really deep-seated self-loathing and that if I if I do this thing that makes me useful that maybe I'm not such a waste or something like that. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. I I also think about a lot of it as, like, we live in a productivity culture and, like, a culture where, like, Mm -hmm. one of the only ways that, like, we can argue for, like, our own existence or, like, we can argue, like, our value of ourselves is through the work we create, which I think is fundamentally flawed, but, like, it is something that we can't escape.
1: Yeah, it's addictive. Yeah. Absolutely. You've said that the most productive years of your life so far have also been your loneliest. Has that changed at all now that you're happily married and have somebody that is sort of standing with you?
0: I feel like it's changed and I feel like I've done a lot of work and Elisa has helped me kind of do a lot of work on myself and trying to like understand this better. But certainly like us being together in like one place during the entire pandemic has helped me really like reassess my priorities and like I like do not like the feeling of like having to be in the same room as this person I love and like not having time throughout the day to like interact with her (laughs) and talk to her and so that's absolutely kind of shifted my my balance I think.
1: I have one last quote that I want to ask you about, and then I'd, I'd really love to ask you to read yeah. one of my favorite passages um, from Goodbye Again. Um, but this last quote is a long one. You write, A friend asked me, after an objectively good and exciting thing happened, if I celebrated it, mm-hmm. I laughed it off with a, ha, no which I still feel bad about. I didn't mean to make my friend feel like it was a dumb question. It's just that I've made the concept of celebrating anything such a foreign thing to me, because if I do, that means it's happening. And if it's happening, that means I can severely screw it up. And if I severely screw it up, that means it will not be happening anymore. And if it is not happening anymore, that means that everyone will know that I severely screwed up. And this all causes me to get so anxious that I feel more likely and more able to screw the thing up than I did before. And so I found that in general, it's just easier to ignore it and just try to get through it without imagining and then willing into existence all the ways I can go about messing it up. Johnny, um, how did you get your hands on my diary?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just published it. I just I I took all your thoughts and just, just published them as my own words.
1: <laughs> I was like, whoa, when I read that. You know, one of the questions I'm I'm doing a little um column on printmagazine.com about Uh what matters to people. And one of the questions is how long does the feeling of accomplishment or pride and accomplishment last for you? And so far, I think the longest amount of time for anyone that I've asked this question to was like five minutes. (laughs) So I completely relate to this. And I'm wondering why is it that humans have such an incapacity to feel good about what they've accomplished.
0: Yeah, I spend my time, a lot of my time thinking about that too. Um, Just like, as an aside, I already feel like I'm not the person who wrote the book. Mm. To me, the book was such, it existed with me for so long. And I kind of knew that like, as soon as it it would be published, I would feel very kind of distant from it. And like, uh, there's a sad distance from it. I tend to, and I'm trying not to, but I tend to identify myself using the projects that I'm currently working on that like when I was sure. working on the book right. I could be like oh yeah I'm an author because I'm working on this book now I don't feel like an author because I had written a book but I'm not actively working on a new book so I don't know if I can like hold that label and like I like hold that identity anymore and also to understand that like there's no value in like trying to compare myself to other people because we're all a different we're all different. And, like, we are all at different stages in our lives and our careers and, like...
1: Yeah, and that's what we have Instagram for, too.
0: <laughs> exactly. That, <laughs> um, like, it's... So I'm trying to, like, really um, really not feel like I should be doing something else. I'm trying really hard to just be like, okay, the book came out and I'm, I can be happy with that and just sit with it mm. for a bit. But that's hard.
1: That's, that's... I hope you can do that because the book brings so much happiness to people. It's it's just one of those books that is beautifully, happily sad. Thank I can't, you. I can't put it any other way. It's Han. It's Thank Han. Thank you. There's so many other things that you do that we really haven't gotten a chance to talk about. I just wanted to mention them because I think that you are a hyphenate. You are an author, an illustrator, a screenwriter, a playwriter, an artist. I'd like to ask you about some of your more recent yeah. projects. You've also worked on Netflix's animated series, Bojack Horseman, the Emmy-nominated show. You worked on an art installation, as I mentioned in Mm -hmm. the intro, called The Laughing Room. Talk about The Laughing Room, because that one, I think, is super special.
0: Yeah, The Laughing Room was fun because um, what I've been trying to do is find a way around, like, focusing on the things I'm studying in my dissertation and my PhD, which is mainly about, like, online community and virtual place and what it means to, like, exist and be present in a virtual online space, whether that's like a social media platform or whether that means like the Zoom window that we're looking at each other with and like what it means like emotionally and like psychologically that this is a place that we inhabit even though it's not one that we physically inhabit. So that's like a constant question that I'm trying to uh, untangle and figure out with my dissertation. But The Laughing Room essentially is an an art installation. Uh, We built a sitcom set and we put like a living room set, um, and we put like bright lights and made it feel very artificial, like you were on the set for a sitcom. Uh, and then we, um, me and Hannah Davis, who's a programmer and artist uh, who's brilliant, uh, she created an algorithm that was trained on um, hundreds of hours of stand-up comedy. And essentially what the algorithm does is it listens to everyone who's in the room and it will decide when to play a laugh track based on if the algorithm decides if the thing they said is funny or not.
1: So it was laugh track worthy. Yes,
0: exactly. And so we created a sitcom set (laughs) and we replaced the live human audience with an algorithmic one. And um, the joyful thing and the thing that Hannah and I always talk about is like, it's exciting that the algorithm isn't, isn't perfect. The uncanny kind of like imperfection of our algorithm was the point of, like, it would laugh at wrong times or it would be silent after someone told a very obvious joke. And the question was, like, does that make people uncomfortable when they're in the space to, like, have the knowledge that they are being observed or listened to or recorded um, and reacted to? And the other thing is, like, how does that change your own perceptions of, like, if you're funny or not or, like, who you're performing to? And it was a metaphor or, like, an analog of this feeling that I get online all the time of like when I'm on Twitter and I'm telling my jokes and I'm writing, how much of that is being seen by like the people who follow me versus how much of that is like going to an algorithm that's like a middleman that is going to determine if that it should be like boosted to more people or if it should be like limited in its audience. And I think as we kind of exist in these deeper phases of social media, there's more and more algorithmic curation and control and like this performance to an algorithm as opposed to a human audience. And so all those questions I wanted to like put into the laughing room and and make it like a real world example of that.
1: Before we close the show, I did say I wanted to ask you if you would read one of my favorite passages in the book and it is titled How to Cook Scrambled Eggs.
0: Sure, absolutely. So there's a section in the book that's called How to Cook Scrambled Eggs and it's essentially a series of egg recipes. That sort of tell like a story about like me and my parents and what I like my childhood and my growing up, and particularly I wanted to explore the things that I inherited from my parents. So this first section is um, how to cook scrambled eggs. Ingredients: eggs, oil or butter, pan, heat. Thoughts: Place a pan on the stove and set the heat to the lowest setting. Wait for the pan to get a little tiny bit warm, then add oil or melt butter into the pan. Meanwhile, crack eggs into a bowl and whisk them until smooth. Pour the whisked eggs into the very slightly warmed pan and stir slowly, constantly. Keep stirring the raw egg fluid. Keep stirring the raw egg fluid. Never stop stirring the raw egg fluid. Stir, noting that if it doesn't look like anything's happening at all, that means you're on the right track. Stir, noting that if it looks like nothing will ever change, that means you're doing it right. Keep stirring the raw egg fluid. Stare at the eggs you're stirring until you forget everything else. There is only the egg fluid. Watch it swirl as you stir it. Never stop stirring. As soon as you stop, the eggs will set and burn. Just keep stirring. Keep zoning into the egg cyclone until you forget that you are the one stirring it, and until you forget yourself. Let the yellow raw egg juice be what centers you. Let your mind swirl the way the raw eggy glob swirls around the pan. You're in egg world now. Everything is egg. Stir thinking of eggs. Stir scrambling your thoughts of eggs.
1: Johnny Sun, thank you so much for creating work that matters. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design
0: Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. This was such a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Johnny Sun's latest book is titled, Goodbye Again, Essays, Reflections, and Illustrations. And you can see more about what Johnny is up to on his website, johnnysun.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced from the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily
2: Weiland.